Chapter Nine of Curiosities of Olden Times. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Curiosities of Olden Times by Sabine Baring Gold. Chapter Nine, Hermippus Redivivus. Men said the learned Prioli, is composed of soul, body, and goods. In his pilgrimage through life, these component parts are constantly exposed to three mortal enemies, the devils, who are ever seeking the destruction of his soul, the doctors, who are intent on ruining his constitution, and the lawyers, who seek to rob him of his goods. We will put the devils aside for a moment, the lawyers too, with the tongues, and devote our attention to the doctors. We have already examined the medical treatise entitled Flagellum Salutis, wherein was exposed the excellence of the whip for the cure of every disorder to which mortality is heir. We propose, considering, another equally startling tractate in this paper, one more modern, by a few years than that of Dr. Paulini, but its superior in absurdity. The title of the work is Hermippus Redivivus, or a curious physical-medical examination of the extraordinary manner in which he extended his life to a hundred fifteen years by inhaling the breath of little girls, taken from a Roman memorial, but now supported on medical grounds, as also illustrated and elucidated by a wondrous discovery of philosophical chemistry by Johann Heinrich Kohausen, M.D., eight volumes, 1743. Footnote original edition in latin a translation by john campbell doctor of laws under the title of hermippus redivivus london seventeen forty three a second edition much enlarged under the title hermippus redivivus or the sage's triumph over old age and the grave london seventeen forty nine eight volumes we have seen also an italian translation that from which we quote is the german edition and a footnote this extraordinary book is adorned with an illustration representing a pedagogue with a big nose of Brobdingnagian proportions, keeping a mixed school of solemn little girls in jackets and aprons, and little prigs of boys in stocks, knee-breeches, coats, and wigs. One little boy, whose body is the size of the master's hand, sits reading a book on his right knee. On the ground, at his left, is a little maiden, just reaching to the top of the master's gaiters. A tiny dog is sitting up, begging in the midst of a class in the middle distance. And in the background, behind a row of urchins who are not looking at their books, is a cat as big as any one of them, attacking a cage containing a singing bird. The whole of this strange work is built on a Roman inscription, said to have been found in the 17th century, and figured by Thomas Reinsius in his Syntagma Inscriptionum Antiquarum, and afterwards by Johann Kaiser in his Parnassus Cliwensis. This inscription, which is almost certainly not genuine, runs as follows. Aesculapio et sanitati, Lucius Claudius Hermippus, qui vixit annos centum quindecim dies quinque puellarum angelitu, quod etiam post mortem eius non parum mirantur pusici iam posteri sic vitam ducite. That is to say, to Aesculapius and to health, Lucius Claudius Hermippus dedicates this, 
who lived a hundred fifteen years five days on the breath of little girls which even after his death not a little astonishes physicians ye who follow protract your life in like manner other old writers as cuyacius and dalechampius quote similar inscriptions as lucius claudius hirpanus vixit annos centum quidecim dies quinque alitus puerorum angelitu and lucius claudius hirpanus vixit annos centum quinquaginta quinque dies quinque puerorum halitu refocilatus et educatus these inscriptions are sufficiently like and unlike to make it more than probable that they are all forgeries it is hardly to be conceived that there should have been two individuals with names so very similar living similar lengths of time footnote it is possible that by the engraver's fault the l in the last inscription may have been substituted for an x and a footnote the one on little girl's breath the other on that of little boys if however we are to suppose them genuine we have lucius claudius hermippus dying aged a hundred fifteen years five days lucius claudius hirpanus dying aged a hundred fifty-five years five days however the authenticity of these monuments is of little importance let us to our book dr cohausen enters on a minute verbal commentary on the words of the inscription after having relieved his enthusiasm in a lengthy preface and a still longer epistle dedicatory to a doctor of his acquaintance the commentary is as careful as the life hung upon each letter of the text having completed this portion of his work the author gives rein to his fancy and elaborates from his internal consciousness a life of lucius claudius hermippus this is too curious to be passed over dr cohausen asks how the subject of the inscription managed to live upon the breath of little girls he inquires whether hermippus was a very wealthy man and enters into reasons which appear to him conclusive to the contrary he makes elaborate calculations as to the number of children who would have been necessary to supply breath to hermippus supposing them to have been changed every five years and he to have adopted his system of prolonging life at the age of sixty after having discussed the question whether lucius claudius were a schoolmaster or the director of an hospital for children he concludes that he was the head of an orphanage supported by government and when he has quite satisfied his mind upon this point dr cohausen proceeds to sketch the daily routine of the life of hermippus as follows Quote, the orphanage which was like a palace had many handsome dwellings and dining-rooms adapted for the daily uses of himself and the children so that the breath and exhalations from such a number of little girls might fill the enclosed air and might mingle to compose a salubrious vapour which absorbed into the lungs of hermippus might the better exercise the desired properties in these rooms he spent with them the greater part of the day occupying the time in friendly and agreeable conversation unfolding to them good rules of life relating innocent stories and wisely pronouncing exhortations on the practice of virtue early in the morning when the noise of the awaking children aroused him at his command they kindled in the room a fire 
in order that the air, which had become thickened during the night, might be rarefied. In damp weather they perfumed it with the best perfume several times in the day, because they had been instructed by their master how necessary this was to the preservation of health. When the aged man left his room, the little damsels waited on him in the breakfast chamber, and wished him a happy morning. Often he explained to them the dreams which they related to him, making them conduce to their moral edifications. Some of those sufficiently old to have an inkling of the art of flattery combed out his snow-white hair. Others smoothed out his long white beard. Others again rubbed his back with a coarse towel, which is considered good for the health of old people. And if, at that period, tea or coffee had been drunk, unquestionably they would have supplied him with it. At all events, we may conclude, as these beverages were not then in vogue, that it is quite possible to reach a great age without imbibing them. When school-time was over, they passed the rest of the day in childish sports, with the permission of Hermippus. They jumped about, they played with their dolls, sometimes they also sang, for old people consider nothing so good for health and so invigorating as vocal music. And in this manner, everything conduced to assist the expirations of the little girls in supporting our old man. If ever he was compelled to leave the room, one might see the children dragging at his coat-tails to detain him, and fervently desiring his return. Adjoining the orphanage was a pleasant garden, in which were plants and flowers calculated by their odor to quicken the vital spirit and assist in the prolongation of life. With these the maidens daily adorned the rooms. Into this garden Hermippus betook himself with all the little girls, each provided with a doll, and he walked about with them in it, chaffed them, romped, danced and sang, acting as though his limbs were those of youth. A thousand little rogueries, a thousand little jokes on the part of the tiny lesses, assisted in enlivening him, for they possessed the art of making themselves cheerful. They wreathed flowers, and placed a crown of spring blossoms on the white head of Hermippus. And thus he spited the fates, and reached an advanced age. End of quote. Will it be believed that all this detail is pure invention on the part of Dr. Cohausen? The learned author next proceeds to reason upon the cause producing these results. He solves the question why the breath of little girls should tend to prolong life. The breath, says Dr. Cohausen, consists of an inhalation and an exhalation, and if I speak scientifically, I say that when man breathes, he lets forth the thick and thin airs through his mouth and nostrils, which he had before received into his lungs, where they had become impregnated with the evaporations from his body, the subtilized watery particles and vitalizing blood, the balsamic and sulfuric atoms. Wherefore, the human breath, when outside the spiracles, has a material character, namely, an exhalation from the vapors and gases which are intermixed with the blood and sap of the human body. And it is so especially in the breath of little girls. So observes Ficinus. This air is warm or tepid, and it moves and is endowed unmistakably with life, 
and like an animal is composed of joints and limbs, so that it can turn itself about, and not only so, but it has a soul also, so that we may certainly predicate that it is an animal composed of vapor, and endowed with reason. Consequently, any one who draws into his lungs this breath or conglomerated vapor must necessarily absorb into his system the properties of that body from which it emanated, and from which it derived its being. For we know by experience that the air which enters the lungs, dry, goes forth carrying with it moisture, as may be seen by breathing on a glass or in cold weather. Also, when we inhale the breath of any one who is ill, we are conscious of receiving infection. On the other hand, it is manifest that the breath of a young and vigorous person charged with powerful volatile salts will have a balsamic and vitalizing capacity, or at the least a mechanical elasticity which must communicate vigor. The doctor quotes with approval the opinion of Van Helmont that the air absorbed into the lungs penetrates the whole system and circulates through every part to the very hair, catching up volatile salts on its passage. Thence he concludes that the exhalations of little girls who are brimming over with vitality, and heaven knows what life-giving salts, must be charged with some of their redundant vitality, and if this breath be inhaled by an old man, he assumes into himself and absorbs into his constitution that life which had been cast off as superfluous by the children. Quae spiramina dat puella, nectar, dat rores animae suave olentes, dat nardumque tumumque cinamumque et mel, quale yugis tegunt himeti, aut inque cropiis apes rosetis, quae simulta mihi voranda dentur, immortalis in iis repente fiam. The third line, with its repetition of umque, is peculiar rather than elegant. The doctor rates the schoolmasters of his day for smoking during class hours. He tells them that they are losing an opportunity of inhaling the most invigorating salts at no expense. Quando doces pueros, tibi fistula semperin ore est, atque scolae fumos angulus omnis habet. O oh, my Herbilius, he exclaims, wherefore dost thou do so? Dost thou complain of the stuffiness of the schoolroom? Thou art mistaken, Herbilius, these vapors are full of volatile salts, by which, if thou wert wise, thou wouldst attain a long life. Away with thy nasty pipe, and suck in rather these redolent exhalations, whereby thou mayst become healthy and aged. It must not be supposed that the scientific, or physical-medical, as the doctors call it, portion of the subject is dismissed in such few words. The author dilates on the theory, turns it over, tosses it about, takes a bite, squeezes it, holds it up for admiration, and then reluctantly puts it aside. In the course of his physical-medical argument, he introduces a few illustrative anecdotes. One of these, taken from P. Borellus, is to this effect. A servant, much devoted to his master, on his return from a journey, found his lord dead and prepared for burial. Full of grief, he cast himself on the deceased, and kissing his pallid lips poured forth a whirlwind of sights. The breath thus emitted penetrated to the lungs of the corpse, inflated them, 
and the dead opened his eyes, winked and sat up. The sighs of the faithful domestic had fanned into flame the expiring, and as all had deemed expired, vital spark. From Orobelius our author quotes another story, in confirmation of his hypothesis. A woman had died in her first confinement, or, at all events, had fallen into a state which was believed by the attendants and by Orobelius, who was the physician present, to be death. She lay thus for a quarter of an hour devoid of sense and feeling, with pale face, stationary pulse, and with lungs which had ceased to play. A maid-servant who thus beheld her opened her mouth and breathed into it, whereupon the patient revived. The physician then asked the girl where she had learned the use of this simple yet efficient restorative, and the servant replied that she had seen it practiced upon newborn children with the happiest results. The author also assures us of the beneficial effect produced by wringing the necks of poultry before a person in articulo mortis, and making the cocks and hens breathe out their souls into the mouth of the dying, whereby he is not unfrequently restored, and becomes quite well and chirpy. But, continues Dr. Cohausen, it is not only the exhalations from the lungs which are life-generative, but also those from the pores. The pores are little mouths situated all over the body, constantly engaged in the aeration of the blood. They inhale the surrounding atmosphere and then exhale it again, charged with balsamic and sulfurous particles, taken up from the system. Men's bodies are pneumatic hydraulic machines, composed of fluid and solid materials, and health depends on the fluids being prevented from coagulating by being stirred up by the constant operations of the currents of air which penetrate the frame through the pores and mouth. The solid portion of the body is disposed to harden and dry up and become stiff, and this produces age and decay. But if the circulation of the fluids be kept up by the healthful infusion of fresh vital force and living energies, then the crepitude and death may be almost indefinitely postponed. Now, the lips of the little mouths or pores all over the person can be kept flexible by oil, and therefore enabled to perform their functions with facility. Thus Polio, an ancient soldier of the Emperor Augustus, when asked how he had succeeded in prolonging his energies over a hundred years, replied that he had daily moistened his outer man with oil, and his inner man with honey. Dr. Cohausen proceeds to lay down that it is better to absorb the exhalations of little girls than those of little boys, because females are more oily than males. A few we in no way feel inclined to dispute, without having recourse to the receipt of Macrodius for wholesale incremations, which the doctor quotes to establish the fact. Quote, Lay one female body to six male bodies in a great pyre, for thereby the male corpses are the more speedily consumed. No doubt about it. There is enough combustible material in one woman to set any number of men in a blaze. Johannes Fabricius, in his Palladium Climicum, relates that he knew of a lady whose hair, when combed, emitted sparks. Bartholinus mentions in his Tractatus de Luce Hominum the case of a female who flashed fire whenever her limbs or back were rubbed with a towel. These examples lead our author to conclude that, in women, there is not merely a considerable amount of oil, but that there is also no small item of latent fire, 
we are inclined to add explosive material as well. The advantage of old men marrying young wives is next discussed by Dr. Cohausen, and he strongly urges all who have entered on the sear and yellow leaf to take to themselves wives of very early age, that, if Providence has not made them superintendent of orphanages or schoolmasters, they may be enabled, at small expense, to inhale youthful breath. Men already possessed of wives are to spend their days in the nursery. As an instance of the advantage of patriarchs taking girl wives, he relates the story of a certain ancient man with snow-white hair and beard, who married at the advanced age of eighty. After a while the old man fell ill. All his hair and skin came off. On his recovery he had a fresh, transparent complexion, and a magnificent bushy head and chin of vivid red hair. Whatever you do, earnestly entreats the doctor, never marry an old woman. She will absorb all the vital principle from your lungs. Alas for him, who in hopes of gaining money, marries a rich old spinster. She becomes youthful, and he prematurely aged. For old women, he continues, are like cats, whose breath is poisonous to life. From the eyes and mouth a cat discharges so much that is hurtful, that it has been the cause of innumerable complaints. Indeed, Matthiolus relates that a whole monastery of religious died because they kept a number of cats. My dear reader, says Cohausen, if you are young and wish to marry, follow the advice of Baron von Havel, late member of the Imperial Council, which he gives in his Salmodia Sacra. Si cupis uxorem quae praestet ubique decorem, formidet quemarem, dilige sorte parem, prolificam, bellam, prudentem quae repuellam, non genium vanum, nec viduam, nec anum. That is, if you want a wife who may be a credit to you, and respect her husband, choose a girl your equal, prolific, comely, prudent, not a giddy head, nor an old widow. If this is a specimen of the baron's sacred psalmody, we must allow the book to be very light reading for a Sunday. In reading this extraordinary work, one is astonished at the manner in which the author seems to regard the fair sex as merely pharmaceutic agents, putting them much on a level with pills and powders, created for the purpose of keeping men in good health and prolonging their lives. The idea scarce suggests itself to him, that they may object to be so regarded and administered. Dr. Cohausen would, as soon as look at you, write a prescription containing, among other items, so many respirations of the breath of little girls to be taken in scented smoke. Recipe Gum olibani, one pound eight ounces. Gum studak, two ounces. Gum murhi, two ounces. Gum bentoin, four ounces. Corticis cascara pulvis, four drams. Angelus puellarum, quantum sufficit. When the question does arise, how the damsels will like this treatment, the doctor brushes it aside with imperturbable coolness. It will be a great honor to them to be thus rendered conducive to the prolongation of male life. Indeed, it will cause them not to be held as cheap as they are now. At present, they are good for naught, but employed to infuse the breath of life into men's lungs, 
they will be respected and valued. And now, with a flourish of horns, he introduces the wondrous discovery of philosophical chemistry, of which he boasted on his title page. Now then, O ye cooks of Gebrai, or, that I may give you your better title, ye sons of Hermes, who has taught you to extract the marvellous stone of the philosophers from the fire, that thereby ye may be skilled to sustain a protracted life. Now will I disclose to you a new philosophy, the once famous hermetic philosopher in France, Johann Petzus Faber of Montpellier, boasted of a certain Arcanum Animale, which would cause any one who used it to be free from injury caused by the inclemency of the weather, from the gray hairs of age, from exhaustion through bodily fatigue, or through mental tension, whom no sickness would enfeeble, but who would reach the term fixed by providence for his days, free from injury from every foe. I shall prove that Hermippus protracted his life by the use of such an arcanum. For although hitherto it has been an unknown arcanum to use the crude breath of little maidens for the prolongation of the mortal existence, still it will be regarded a far higher arcanum if this can be concentrated and cooked into an essence by chemical process, so that it should have in itself the invisible spirit of nature and the subtilized fundamental principle of life. Let no one consider what I am now about to relate as a fable, but let him hold it as genuine fact. In my youth I had the good fortune to have the entree of the house of an illustrious personage, whose lady was immeasurably learned in the hermetic science, and labored at it along with her husband. With her I had the opportunity of discussing the primordial matter of universal substance, which the philosophers have veiled under enigma and fable. She boasted that she had learned the secret of this from an Italian adeptus at Rome, and thereby she aroused my curiosity to hear what it was, although at the time I was by no means slightly acquainted with hermetic philosophy. Once, as I urgently besought her to do me the favor of disclosing to me this mystery, she began, after the manner of philosophers, to speak in similitude. She said the ens spirituale was that without which no man could exist. It was common to all, to rich and poor alike. Adam brought it with him out of paradise, and in it lay a nourishing principle of life, attenuated in water and exhaled in air. I will not refer to other enigmas, which she knew how to propound from the writings of philosophers. In order to make the matter more conclusive, she ordered to be brought from her cabinet a vessel containing cold water, which she held under my nose, telling me that it was the true subjectum of science, distilled, as one might conclude, from female exhalations, which Flamellus terms corporeal vapor. With this, she roused to the highest pitch my anxiety, to thoroughly sound the mystery, as I had already seen hints of these properties in the writings of Sandivogius and other philosophers. I did not fail to use my utmost persuasion, on every available opportunity, to penetrate the secret of this lixivium microcosmi. At last, the favor was accorded me, and I ascertained that this holy arcanum consisted in human breath, which was collected from this lady's servant-girls, and liquefied in glass instruments, 
curved like trumpets. The water thus gathered was concentrated in retorts and other chemical apparatus, and was the very essence fixed of impalpable matter. By means of this discovery, life may be easily prolonged over a hundred years, for this vapor of breath collected from maidens in trumpets, when distilled, becomes an elixir of life, and by the copious use of this concentrated vitality steamed down to an essence, man becomes interpenetrated with living energy, capable of resisting disease and repelling the inroads of age. If we consider that the substances we absorb into our bodies become part of ourselves, and that our systems are undergoing a perpetual assimilation of the particles taken into us, and renovation thereby, so that every seven years we have totally changed our substance, it is evident that, in the words of a learned friend of Dr. Cohausen, this entire Hermippus, since he lived over one hundred years, must have been completely composed of the transmutated breath and porous exhalations of little girls, so that his career must have closed by evaporation. It is certain that men can live a long time on what they inspire without eating, for the famous laughing philosopher Democritus, who lived to a hundred and nine, when near his death observed that his sister was depressed, and on inquiring the cause, ascertained that she had anticipated great pleasure by attending an approaching festival of Ceres, but that she feared his death would render it an infringement of etiquette for her to be present at the public festivities. Democritus consoled her by promising to live over the day, and, in order to extend his life the required time, he ordered her to keep warm bread poultices under his nose, that by constantly inhaling the nourishing vapors he might be preserved. When the festival was over, he ordered the bread pap to be removed, whereupon he gently expired. Now, argues our doctor, and this is a signal illustration of his method of drawing conclusions from insufficient premises. If the vapor of bread could sustain the fleeting spirit of Democritus, then the still more invigorating outbreathings of little maidens will prolong life indefinitely. For only consider how much better are little girls than soft pap. At the startling results of this discovery, non parum mirantur pisici, therefore ye posteri sic vitam ducite. End of chapter 9